This episode is dedicated to Jeff Sargas, Katie Anderson, Austin Lucas, and Mixed Combat Radio for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The Southpaw podcast and project is supported entirely by listeners like you. If you want to support the work that we do, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Share these episodes, follow us on social media. If you're a new listener, make sure to click subscribe. And if you really want to support this project, then become a paid monthly subscriber on patreon.com slash southpawpod. If you head over to Patreon and subscribe for just $4 a month, you will get immediate access to our complete catalog of bonus episodes, videos, and articles. The more supporters we have, the more time we can dedicate to the show, which means more bonuses, such as classic fight commentary, transcripts of interviews, building a liberation martial arts online curriculum, and most important of all, hire and pay for staff. If you can't support us monthly, you can also do one-time donations at co-fi.com slash southpawpod. We also have t-shirts and sweatshirts to not only flex the show, but your own moral compass. By supporting us, you're not only helping us grow, you're also helping us stay and keep this project running. We can't exist without your support. Thank you. This is Sam. This is Jen. And this is Southpaw. Today on Southpaw, we have feminist media scholar and the author of the new book, Fighting Visibility, Sports Media and Female Athletes in the UFC, Professor Jennifer McLaren. Thanks for being on the show, Jen. I'm super excited. I'm so excited to be here. I can't wait for this conversation. Your book, Fighting Visibility, is, in my opinion, the best non-narrative book on MMA by far. It's also the only academic book on MMA that I'm aware of. It's a book every conscientious MMA fan should pick up because it critically analyzes the neoliberal capitalism of the UFC and how that affects equity and labor rights. But that's my own thoughts on the book, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. How would you describe your book? Well, first of all, I really like your description of the book (laughs) because it's both (laughs) praising it and hitting at the heart of it at the same time. So uh, I like that start. I would add that essentially the academic argument, the thing that I'm trying to make that's going to reach other areas of the academy and other other fans of sports, other journalists writing about sports, is this idea that visibility is a good thing always. We have said for a long time in our culture that representation matters. If she can see it, she can be it, is a powerful way to grant equity in society. Because if you look at women's sports across the board, there's abysmally low levels of representation. Somewhere between 4 and 10% of all sports media coverage worldwide is it, it goes to women's sports. So you have that. You have the underrepresentation, the symbolic annihilation, if you will. And then on top of that, when women are represented, there's a few trends that come out like objectification or trivialization or just generally not caring about women's sports. And 
what this book does is give us an opportunity to look at a sports media entity that is in some regards taking women's sports seriously and that they are hiring female athletes for their cards. They are supporting them to a degree and there's greater visibility for women in combat sports than ever before, I would say, because of their ability to put women on screen. But the critique that I have for that in the broader academic argument that I'm trying to get across is that visibility doesn't mean equity and it can be used for profit by a neoliberal entity like the UFC that sort of came across this idea of promoting women and realized they can make money off of it. And they did make a lot and they have made a lot of money off of it, especially with Ronda Rousey. And it doesn't mean that the, that the women in the sport, the female athletes are actually getting their due. And we know there's pay equity issues and treatment issues across the UFC writ large, men or women. But what the book is looking at is how it impacts women in particular. When you're writing the first academic book on a topic, you can't rely on a bunch of other books in this field. But you can't apply lenses from pre-existing fields onto a new subject or context. I think a lot of us tend to think of things as being domain-specific. Sports is sports, work is work, politics is politics, and so on. So can you talk to us about what lenses you use to analyze the UFC and why looking at things from a school of thought can help us better understand a subject we might take for granted? I write this book from a particular intellectual genealogy, and that genealogy is called cultural studies. So it's a particular train of thought that people gathered together, had conversations in writing around, and developed a few different theories, well, several different theories, in fact, to help understand particular cultural contexts. And what I mean by that is that when you're looking at any given thing, uh, let's say the UFC, for example, it's not just the organization in itself. It's not just the people that make it up, but it's situated in a broader cultural context that has a broader politics. It has economic forces. It has social forces that all intertwine to inform how that, that thing is represented, how it operates, how people understand it in the audience, and so on and so forth. And so I think I started this book within that framework in that I didn't want to just understand one angle of it. I wanted to understand the interplay among representation and things like politics and things like economic forces that have a bearing on what type of representations we see on screens. And so I drew on lots of different other literature. So not just, wasn't just about MMA because there's not a lot of academic literature about MMA. There's quite a bit more about sports more generally. And then quite a bit more in feminist work and in cultural studies work that helps read a particular phenomenon and helps us draw out certain things so that we can understand it contextually. Because all of this, because I'm writing in about in a particular period of time where certain things are happening in our culture more broadly that have a bearing on what, what we're seeing, basically. Something your book discusses is luminosity and shadow. Can you explain that for us? Sure. So this fundamentally is thinking about representation. So when we see a representation on screen, 
it's selective. There's not, we're not seeing everything. Let's say we see female athletes. There's certain things that are going to be focused on and certain things that are going to be not focused on. We're not going to, we don't see the full reality when it's represented, when it's mediated. And this concept comes from originally from Deleuze, and then it was interpreted and taken up by a couple of feminist scholars named Angela McRoby and Sarah Benet Weiser, who kind of built on each other's work. And the idea was that certain things become really, really visible, really luminous. So empowerment, women's empowerment, particularly if you take uh, when Wanda Rousey was in the promotion, and even now there's a lot of a lot of discourse about women's empowerment, that becomes a thing that's luminous. It's this is meaningful for girls and women around the world because they're seeing powerful women in a way that they haven't seen before. And this is considered a really good thing. It's, it's considered a really positive thing that people have a lot of emotion behind. So you see that type of advertising and it, and it, it draws up particular positive feelings in, in particular audiences. And so that's what's luminous. But the other things that go into making that image a possibility are the things that don't get the light shown on them. So the labor issue is one of those things where you don't see how women and men, for example, toil away in this profession. It's a very hard profession as an independent contractor because you're always fighting for visibility. You need that visibility in order for the UFC to book fights. So you need to have a certain amount of fans behind you and willing to support you. And all of that is not as visible as the other discourses of like the American dream, for example, and fighters pulling themselves up from the bootstraps. We never see all the fighters failing at the American dream. We only see the ones exceeding. And so all the ones that are left on the roster that are not actually being able to achieve the thing that the UFC has set themselves up to be an avenue to achieve we don't see that. And so that's where the shadow comes in. And that's the part that I'm more interested in is how the luminous things can create tricks of the light, really. And that we think that it's this empowering thing for women. We think that this is, you know, a great thing that the UFC does. And they're getting, you know, in certain arenas, they're getting acclaim for how they're treating their female athletes. But then we look behind the curtains or we look in the shadows and that's where that's where we see all the the toil and the labor that it's not as pretty as what we see through representation touching upon what you said about how fighters or even us fans react to MMA you discuss affect in your book can you define for us what affect means and how it pertains to MMA so I'll give you an example that I I give in the book because I think that that is an easy entry into thinking about this kind of convoluted academic term sometimes it's used in a lot of different ways. So I describe the experience of going to see Rousey fight in Rio in 2015, I think it was. And I went into the arena and I wasn't really sure what was going to happen because it was an American fighter in a Brazilian arena. And obviously in Brazil, they're very into MMA and they're very supportive of their fighters. And throughout the night, I was seeing certain fighters get cheered because they were Brazilian and certain other fighters get booed because they weren't. And so I was waiting to see what, what, what was going to happen with Rousey. 
right before Rousey came in, the crowd got really excited. And there was all of this energy that's circulating around. And people were feeling different things, probably. I couldn't name what everyone was feeling, but there's a certain level of electricity that's generated that's in and among the bodies that are that are in that particular space. And then Rousey comes in and you know, you can imagine, you know, what she looked like and that she always came in in her black hoodie with the mean mug on her face. And she has this really strong, determined march very quickly to the octagon. And that moment when that was happening, all of a sudden I had this like rush of feeling over me that I couldn't even describe what it felt like. It was just the room was so electric and so much was happening. And I had this rush of tears that come to my face, but it wasn't that I was happy or sad or confused or anything. It was just the the experience of being in that like electrifying moment. And I had emotional reactions to it, but affect is what, what I'm describing is, is how particular sensations move through bodies and, and they move in different ways in a given moment. Um, if we were to take that to another example, and this is a little bit different because I didn't, I didn't experience it personally, but in the recent fight between Zhang Li and Rose Nama Yunus, I think the same thing was happening in the crowd in that there is this general sensation that wells up so that there was a welling of support that came up for Nama Yunus, and then there was a welling of of all sorts of negative reactions that were coming up for Wei Li. And when that happens, those things can be really powerful precursors to action, is what scholars talk about, because it can be how somebody interprets the meaning of a particular event can come from that effective experience, or it can be really, it makes the meaning of the event in different ways. And so I think UFC events, a lot of times have those, have those effective moments and you can experience them, experience them also vicariously through the television. And I describe another moment in the book where I'm talking about that, where, you know, you can see it happening. Um, but it is, it's connected to emotion, but it's not emotion necessarily itself. But what it does, these positive or negative feelings can be part of that luminosity that I talk in the book, I talk about in the book, because what I talk about is this idea of women's empowerment being this, this luminous feel good thing that makes us, you know, a lot of us have be very attracted to these images because we think that they are conveying meanings of progress and we think that they are that they are generating a certain form of equity for women in the sport. But we have to be really careful with those effective experiences because they may not exactly mean what we think that they are. And we can let this overpower our own understanding of a particular phenomenon because we're only, you know, experiencing part of it and we're not seeing everything else that goes goes into what makes a, a female athlete, for example. So even from the things you described, we can see that the book's title, Fighting Visibility, isn't so clear cut. It can be read multiple ways. I think initially people might just see it as fighting for visibility, but there's a lot of ways that you mean it because you also talk about how fighting for visibility isn't enough. So then let's get back into visibility. Why doesn't visibility create equity when 
I guess our base assumption is that it would automatically do so. Exactly. So in order to understand that, I want to explain two different ways of thinking about visibility that are common in academic discourse about representation. There is the politics of visibility and there are economies of visibility. So politics of visibility is the one that we typically, the framework we typically use to think about what representation means in society. So the premise is that if a marginalized group increases visibility within media, that they will suddenly have greater power within society because they're recognized as subjects, because their voices will be heard, and they can advocate for themselves and you know, tell stories differently because they have a voice within society. When you say recognized as subjects, are you differentiating then subjects from objects? Yes. So that there is an assumption that, that if you have voice and if you are visible in media, then you are a subject, not just an object to be looked at because you have a voice, you have a way of, of, of being seen. So that is the idea behind it, is that it does produce subjectivity in the politics of visibility. But then there is another way of thinking about this that is more contemporary and more culturally culturally connected to now. And when I was talking about cultural studies earlier, one of the ways that you do t- cultural studies research is that you have to be really in tune with the particular moment. And that particular moment, again, is informed by economics, politics, and other cultural things that are happening at a given time. Or how, you know, or things that are really effective, have a lot of effective resonance and are circulating around in culture in different spheres that can all give a particular cultural context. So economies of visibility is more situated in our current sociocultural economic moment in that we have a society that now recognizes that marginalized voices have economic currency. And what I mean by this is if you look at the trend, um, you know, over the past summer, for example, after George Floyd's murder, there was a lot of emphasis and a lot of affective resonance around Black Lives Matter and around cultural protests and things like that. And you had various different organizations and corporations taking up that flag of Black Lives Matter when they were afraid to do it before and actually embedding that within their advertising. And so economies of visibility is looking at that, how that visibility can have economic value attached to it. And having that economic value attached to it gives this idea that if you can just see these things, if you just, you know, if you just say Black Lives Matter in your advertising, or if you just represent a female athlete, or if you just, you know, have an Asian American as part of part of your your board of directors in a company, then that is enough because you have you've arrived, you've achieved some sort of equity. And so with the politics of visibility, really, it's just this assumption that visibility will lead to equity. And with economics of visibility, it's attaching it to some sort of commodity, making it a commodity, making it something that you can purchase or 
or, or something like that. And so what we're seeing now actually is a lot more, if you look at marketing and advertising, there is a ton more emphasis on visibility. Just look at the number of advertising of mixed race families, for example, in the media, you see a ton of that and there, there's all this emphasis. But what scholars and what I argue in this book in particular is that that, is, that does not produce equity because it's not actually changing the fundamental structures of exploitation that capitalism perpetuates. And that is a hierarchy of class and a hierarchy of power that seeks to maintain power for a, for a few people who are at the top of the echelon, at the top of the food chain. And what it does is, is it makes it so those representations are actually feeding that. They're feeding like Nike, for example, is another, is another good example to think about in that you have a lot of, of representation of people of color, particularly black athletes. But if you look at who their CEOs are, you look at who is at the director level, you look at you know who, whoever's high up in the organization, and it's very limited in terms of demographics. And so those representations, why they might, might feel good, they have that effective resonance in, in consumers, it doesn't mean that it's producing equity. And that's the same thing that I'm arguing within the UFC is because just because women are visible, it does not mean that they have good working conditions. It doesn't mean that they're treated fairly. And it doesn't mean that there's been some sort of sea change in sports because they are now visible. So now we're beginning to understand visibility doesn't just mean one thing, and it doesn't always mean a positive thing. So in your book, you talk about how visibility then can also make you a target. Can you speak to us about that? Absolutely. So in the book, I talk about it in the context of social media. So one of the things that UFC fighters in general are encouraged to do, and it's it's not an official job description that the UFC gives them, but one of the unwritten rules of the job is to promote yourself. And one of the ways that they do that is on social media. And if you look at Visibility on social media, it's really a double-edged sword because it is work, first of all, in that you have to post content, you have to figure out what your followers like, you have to engage with your followers. And several of the fighters that I spoke with talked about how the UFC was encouraging them to engage with, with people on social media to increase their views, to increase their visibility. But then we know that the internet is not a nice space for a lot of people, particularly people who are already marginalized. So women and particularly women of color, especially black women, have a really hard time on social media because there's a lot of harassment, there's a lot of misogynoir, and there's a lot of sexism that gets perpetuated in those spaces. And so while women fighters understand that they need to increase their visibility in order to get a chance to be booked for a fight or to get sponsorships, at the same time, they're having to deal with different kinds of labor that is required in order to make themselves visible. Just the labor of posting content and posting about their lives. And then also about emotional labor of dealing with people who are assholes on the internet. A counter argument to the idea that visibility is always a good thing would be doxing. Absolutely. Doxing would be the ultimate form of visibility, but also the ultimate form of danger. 
This is why a lot of outspoken people, activists are often private with their identities. Yeah, absolutely. And to give you another example, a cultural example that's outside of the UFC, but also very important is trans visibility. So in the past probably five to seven years, there's been an increase of trans characters in the media with Orange is the New Black and Pose. There's been some really out uh, trans actors and just trans personalities like Janet Mock and Laverne Cox. And now, if you notice where we are culturally, we have all of these bills that are in state legislatures all over the country that are seeking to exclude and marginalize trans women and girls and to prevent you know, trans women and girls, for example, from having hormone replacement therapy or having uh, gender affirmation surgery or having, you know, just having agency in their own lives in general. And then also specifically in sports, because there's a lot of fear around trans athletes and women's sports. And there is all of this fervor around excluding trans women and girls. And so this is another example where visibility can have negative consequences within society. And this increased surveillance or this increased visibility of of trans women that was positive representation has now filtered down into a lot of fear-mongering and a lot of other types of surveillance practices that are attempting to have determination over trans women's and girls' bodies. Empowerment is another misunderstood word like visibility. Can you talk to us about different meanings for empowerment? Sure. I think the fundamental meaning of the word empowerment is to give power to something. And so if we think about it in terms of giving power to women, then the question is, who is giving power? And if there's a who that's giving power, then there are ways that we're sort of reifying that power, saying that it's, let's say, the men, the white cis men that are in charge of a particular media organization are attempting to empower women, so to give power to women. And fundamentally, that's a a tenuous relationship, I think. And also, when we talk about empowerment, there's been a lot of interest in the past, again, probably five to 10 years or so, about girls and women's empowerment in particular. And it's, it's been written into a lot of advertising. It's been written into a lot of organizations that are that are trying to empower girls and women but oftentimes that empowerment is ex- is exclusively focused on white women and girls and other experiences of women and girls in terms of of race are often left out ability is often left out and th- there is this cultural understanding that we tend to have that the girls that need to be protected are young, middle to upper class white girls. And we don't pay as much attention to giving power or to giving um, agency and opportunity to other, other women. So, or other girls. And so that's why a lot of people are a little bit skeptical, I think, of the word empowerment. Um, And then oftentimes it gets cheapened into this idea that it's an individual pursuit, that we can empower one girl or one woman, and there's 
what that does is place the burden on that one girl or that one woman to take the power and run with it. Like that's all they need is just to individually be empowered. But it doesn't take into account that there are larger structures that are not individual. These are made up of, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of other individuals that hold power in our society. And we can't just go about giving power to one girl or woman at a time. We have to think about those broader structures. Um, And so the empowerment model really isn't about organizational or structural change. It's about giving power to individuals most of the time. So empowerment can be selective. It doesn't necessarily mean everyone. Yes. It doesn't mean everyone, and it's often just the individuals as opposed to thinking about the structures. So in speaking of empowerment and even representation, from my own observations, being in the martial arts space and watching the UFC for such a long time, I've seen it done in an anti-feminist way or a racist way. So what I mean by that, and really just piggybacking off of what you're talking about is how often in the martial arts world, and I think that also includes the UFC, empowerment often means self-help. Mm-hmm. To your point, this individualized type of empowerment versus material change. Often I see dojos or gyms or the UFC, they do empowerment or representation in a way to say there is no structural obstacle. There is no patriarchy. There is no institutional racism. You just need to toughen up. You just need to stop being lazy. And it puts the blame on the marginalized person. And a lot of times people share this, even people who might be social justice oriented without really recognizing what's really being said here. I think I tweeted this the other day about how you will see straight up racist gyms, straight up misogynist gyms sharing videos about women beating men in a grappling match or flexing a certain woman fighter. And I can see why this can be confusing because a lot of times we might use that in a positive way, but they're making a critique from the right to say, see, this person can do it. What's your problem? There's nothing stopping you. Absolutely. I mean, I think you're spot on. I think that there is, there is a lot of, obviously there's a lot of sexism and racism embedded in our cultural institutions. And it's things that we can see on the surface. Like we can look at the UFC, for example, and we can point out all the times that Donald Cerrone says a homophobic slur or Dana White says something sexist or, you know, all of these, you know, we see it happening all the time and it gets, it gets pointed out at various stages where there's this overt sexism and overt racism that happens. But then there's also the structural pieces that we're, we're talking about that are a little bit harder for people to identify. So when you're talking about that video of the the woman in the gym, for example, beating a man and how that gets circulated and it gets it gets kind of depicted as this empowering thing. Well, what we would argue and what Stuart Hall says is that is an example of inferential sexism in terms of it's not sort of just being like out there, hey, women suck at jujitsu or whatever it is, but it's saying more covertly, it's saying, look, isn't this amazing that this one, this woman can do this? Well, why is that so amazing? Let's critique that. Like, why, why are you surprised by that? Why is it something that gets circulated as 
as so impressive because if we were to flip the script and it was a man who beat a woman in a fight, it, like or in a sparring match in jujitsu, that wouldn't get any sort of traction. So because it gets some traction is because it's so novel. It's so unfathomable. We can't think of women uh, possibly being able to beat a man in jujitsu. Um, and it's so hard for us to understand. And so that's why it gets circulated. So it's, it's the more inferential sexism that's happening. And to be clear, Stuart Hall talks about overt and inferential racism. And then a lot of times in my classes, what I do is describe the phenomenon also with other types of isms. So you could think about it in terms of sexism, or you could think about it in terms of ableism or in terms of, um, sexuality or something like that. But the point is, is, it's easy to identify the things that are on the surface level racist and sexist, but people don't have a really hard time with being like, well, why is it problematic that you might circulate that, that video of the woman who's beating the guy in jujitsu? I see it all the time in my jujitsu classes. So I don't see it so novel, but, um, but yeah, a lot of people do. And a side note, just for listeners, the most popular video that I've seen spread for years has been the one with Tara La Rosa, who is a former MMA fighter, but who's also a white nationalist and proud boy. And they've been using it actually because they seem much more aware of this type of dynamic and how it tricks people. And so they've been using it as a recruiting video to get people to join the proud boys. Not only is she using it and people within her group using it, but other white nationalists to men's rights groups have also been using it as a recruiting video. And this is like a perfect example of, of some of the things that I'm arguing in the book is because just because something seems on the surface like it might be suggesting empowerment or women's power in a sphere that they don't typically have, it doesn't mean that it can't be co-opted and used for purposes that are really problematic, like this, this Proud Boy example. I think it's being co-opted, but also the original intention by Tara La Rosa was to do something that was ultimately anti-feminist. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you see that happen a lot, too. I think there's this assumption that all women who take in their own power are somehow feminist. And there's a way that the rejection of, of feminism gets taken up a lot in really right-facing groups that they want to prove that, that women don't want to be feminists. I saw you did a panel discussion about sports during the pandemic, and you did something I often do in interviews, which is to explain how different the UFC is from other sports and basically how we're not even at their starting lines. So can you explain how differently the UFC treats their athletes as far as pay and an athlete's ability to control their own career, especially for listeners who might only watch MMA and not know much about other sports, period. Absolutely. So UFC fighters are independent contractors. This means they have a series, they sign a contract for a series of fights. Let's say it's three, it's five, whatever, whatever the contract is. When they do that, part of the contract is they're also not allowed to fight for any other promotion or any, like they couldn't go and do a boxing fight, for example. And there's some fighters right now that are, that are having problems with this in their contracts. So it's a pretty one-sided contract in that 
the UFC has a lot of agency and can can basically break a contract if they decide that they want to, whereas a fighter is stuck. Typically in boxing, for example, you can't have a contract longer than I, th- I believe it's 12 months because of the Ali Act. And with the UFC, it's an indefinite contract. It doesn't really have a time limit on it. Um, so, you know, if you had two fights and then you got injured and three years later, you wanted to go to another promotion, if you still had a fight in your contract, you couldn't, you couldn't get out of it. So that's one thing. And what that means also is that you are not a salaried employee. And so you're not getting the typical benefits that a salaried employee would get. So for example, you are not having certain taxes taken out. You're getting all of that, but then you're taxed on it later. You don't have comprehensive healthcare insurance for you and your family. UFC fighters only have health insurance for the duration of the the actual fight. I believe that they are also under contract when they're in fight camp, but it's the actual fight. That's the, that's the main focus for the UFC is the actual fight. So if you get injured there, you can get it covered through health insurance. It's more like an accident insurance. Yes, exactly. So it's not like I get sick with COVID and need to go to the hospital and that's not going to be covered by the UFC's insurance. So the fighter has to cover that. Insurance is extremely expensive. And fighters don't have any sort of determination over how much they fight, really. They can, they can ask for fights, but the UFC is, they're the ones that get to de- determine who fights when. And so you might only get booked for two fights in a year. You might only get booked for one fight. And this means that you don't have any other income other than, you know, other than what you're getting from that fight or any other job that you might have. So a lot of fighters, you know, especially if they're not the superstars that we see most often, they're most visible. Those fighters are oftentimes have other jobs um, because they can't live on fighting alone. Because the other thing that happens is they pay their team out of that uh, pay that they get from the UFC. So let's say they get a payout, they get uh, show money and win money. And then a percentage of that has to go to their managers. A percentage of that has to go to sometimes their trainers. This isn't a hundred percent across the board. Different fighters have different experiences and different agreements with their managers or with their, their gyms that they train at. But there is, you know, usually some money that's expected out of that. So anytime you see a payout, the fighter is not just pocketing all of that money. The fighter has to do something because they have to pay for the expenses of training. How this is different from big sports or other more visible sports that have been around for a lot longer is that if you're in the NFL, the NBA, the WNBA, or, you know, the MLB, any of those, you have, you're a salaried employee. So you get a certain, you get a certain salary per year. That's a part, it is a contract again, but it's a salaried contract as opposed to an individual fight contract. And this means that you also get health insurance. You also get training. You also get the team doctors. You get all sorts of, you know, they have whole big systems to keep their players healthy. And UFC fighters, on the other hand, you know, if after a fight, they have to pay for all their recovery. So if you want to do massage therapy and you have to recover from a injury in a fight and you have a lot of swelling there's different therapies that you can do that help you get rid of that swelling. And so all of these things, you know, sea fighter has to pay for, whereas somebody in a traditional, you know, big sport here in the U S 
you're not having to pay for all of that. So it's not coming out of your pocket. So the thing about independent contracting is that it's, it's a, it's a very easy way to manage risk for a promotion, for a business entity. It means that you have an expendable pool of labor that you don't have to really take care of and that you don't have to provide insurance for, you don't have to take care of, you don't have retirement benefits for or anything like that. And it makes it a lot cheaper than if you had to have somebody on salary and pay for their insurance and pay for their retirement and pay for a portion of their taxes and all of that stuff. So it's, you know, it's, it's very different. Um, boxing is another sport that hires independent contractors. And so we see some of these issues in boxing as well, but boxing also has a lot more promotions. So there's a lot more competition. So there is more of a willingness to pay fighters a higher salary because there's a lot of, you know, bigger name promotions that are out there. Usually in independent contract work, in lieu of benefits, they pay you more. But in MMA, it seems like the worst of all worlds where you don't get the benefits and they also don't pay you more. Yeah, absolutely. And the other problem with with the UFC's use of independent contractors is that I analyze in the book a lot of legal briefs that are looking at the legality of that. No, I'm not a legal scholar. And so I rely on these legal briefs to help explain how the application of the law works. But there's a lot of them that argue that that UFC fighters are misclassified as independent contractors. And this comes down to the issue of control. So for example, if you are a painter and you are you work for a big paint company and you're employed as a, a salaried employee, then that means that that employer tells you when to work, what uniform you're going to wear. Maybe they give you a truck um, to drive to the job site and they're managing their schedule, they manage your pay, they manage your time off, they manage your everything. If you're an independent contractor and you're a painter, then you go out and you find your own jobs. You decide who you're going to work with. Maybe you're going to work with um, this house over here. Maybe you're going to do this big office project over there. You manage your time. You wear what you want. You decide when you work, all of those things. And there are some arguments that the UFC is misclassifying their fighters because they have so much determination over uh, what the what the fighters are doing. So the uniforms, at first we had Reebok and now we have Venom in the UFC. That's one example of a level of control. Like UFC fighters are not allowed to wear whatever sponsors they want in the ring. And instead they are having to wear the brand that the company decided they're going to have an agreement with. And so that limits them. And also they are not allowed to fight for any other promotion. So unlike that painter, who's also an independent contractor, they can have several different jobs, different painting jobs at the same time. UFC fighters cannot have several different MMA fighting jobs at the same time. And so it's this level of control that's questionable in terms of the the labor practices. Now with social media stars fighting MMA stars in boxing, the line between social media star and fighting is really blurred. Triller seems to be acknowledging both are just different types of social media stars. So how much of your job as an MMA fighter is also being a social media entrepreneur? Or perhaps you do it for the company, but also are you doing social media entrepreneurship as a side hustle? So social media can also be your side job because I see MMA fighters selling NFTs or their Instagram and Twitter comes off like your annoying friend 
who's in a pyramid scheme, who's always trying to sell you stuff. Absolutely. I think more and more of the job is embedded in social media and being an entrepreneur. And I talk about in one of my chapters in the book about being a micro influencer, because that's, that's the speak that, that marketing professionals use in the influencer world is, is people who are not necessarily your Conor McGregor's, although he does, he is an influencer on social media. Maybe they don't have as many followers as Ronda Rousey or someone like that, but maybe they're a fighter that has 50,000 followers and that would be classified a micro influencer. And so the very nature of the job is kind of like independent contracting in that you have to, you have to kind of set your own hours. You have to do your own work and you do a lot of labor. And there's a scholar named Brooke Aaron Duffy that talks about this idea of aspirational labor. So I think it fits within this UFC scheme and that the aspirational labor is the trying to make yourself visible as a fighter on social media so that you get more followers, you get more engagement so that the UFC takes notice and says, hey, we should book this person to, for a fight because they have a lot of followers and a lot of engagement on social media. So the aspiration is, is there, they're hoping the UFC takes notice. There is no guarantee and there's no payment for that visibility, even though it's, it's driving up UFC hashtags, for example. And so the UFC is benefiting from that labor because that fighter is getting the UFC name out there um, in the process of, of trying to market themselves. So it's good for the UFC. Um, but it's, it's also a form of aspirational labor for like you're talking about in that they're not making enough money in the UFC. So they have to find sponsorships outside of the UFC. So they want to accumulate a certain number of brands to promote on their Instagram account because it's a very lucrative form of advertising for companies because it doesn't cost them a lot of money but they can get a lot of labor from people who are trying to make it that aspirational labor for people trying to increase their visibility on social media. And if you look into the literature on micro influencers, it's one of those things that's also a pyramid scheme in that there's a lot of people out there trying to, trying to aim for a full-time job as an influencer, like where that would be the only thing that they do is post pictures about their life and post the sponsored relationships that they have. And that would give them enough money to not have their other job. There's a lot, a lot of people vying for that, but not a lot of people actually achieving that. And I think the same thing holds true for social media, for the UFC, in terms of what fighters are doing online. There's a lot of them laboring for visibility because they think it will be a good thing, but it's not paying off for all of them. And some of the ways that it doesn't pay off for people is that People who engage on social media are still beholden to certain hierarchies of gender, race, class, attractiveness is another one. Um, and the people who tend to make the most money tend to be like white women do really well, pretty white women do really well on Instagram. And the same could be true if you're looking at, you know, pretty white women who can flaunt their sexuality on Instagram, whether they're UFC fighters or they're somebody else, there is a way that there's a particular currency for that. 
and it gets a lot of engagement. Whereas if you're a fighter, like I talk about in the book, I talk about Roxanne Montefiore, who is a white woman, but she doesn't claim, she doesn't flaunt her sexuality. She doesn't try to be this pretty cutesy girl. She's quirky. She's nerdy. And that's part of her brand. And so she's never going to play into that, what she calls posting her butt pictures, because that just doesn't feel authentically her. Whereas the women that can do that, and I talk about Paige Van Zandt in my book, are ones that can get away with that. And that not only get away with it, they get paid a lot. And Van Zandt has talked about how she makes more money on Instagram than she ever made as a fighter. And, you know, good on her. I mean, she's, she's making her dollar. So and it's part of the overall structure that we have. So this is not just the way what I'm describing here is not just the UFC. These structures can be found in a variety of areas of contemporary American life, contemporary Western life, contemporary various other countries around the globe are, are conforming to this model of not having the companies not taking a lot of risk by investing in employees and rather they're just they're just using a lot of independent contracting or gig labor um, or micro influencers because it's a lot cheaper and a lot less risk than actually investing in employees. And a term you've used a couple of times already is brand. So instead of assuming like we might assume with visibility or empowerment, can you explain to us what branding means and what it has to do with MMA? I'm glad you asked that question because oftentimes we assume that a brand is just a symbol. Like we drive down the highway and we see the McDonald's logo and we instantly know what that is. It's an instant brand recognition. And that's part of it. But in contemporary culture, branding has become so much more than that in that it's not just the symbols that we can identify, but it's particular affective resonance, to go back to that term, and particular feelings that we associate with brands. So I'll give you a few examples from broader culture. So the Apple MacBook or the Apple iPhone, there's a particular image so that we recognize what it is, but the commercials, the way that the company talks about itself, the way that it has sort of this ethos of cool and tech savvy. There's all sorts of other associations we could make with the brand that doesn't have to do with just what the product does or just with the label. It goes way beyond that. If you look at their advertising, it, it always is sort of slick, refined, and cool. And so what that's what they're trying to get across. That's the feeling that they're trying to associate with a particular brand. And we talk about it in terms of brand culture in that it's not just the symbols, but it's all the feelings and associations and how, it, how a brand makes somebody feel, how a brand becomes a form of self-presentation. So what I mean by that is, you know, we all know that there's particular brands that we want our identities so associated with and other brands that we don't. Um, and it might be Nike versus Reebok versus Adidas, or it might be Apple versus, you know, Macintosh, or it might be, um, lots of different things where people associate their identities with. And what we're increasingly seeing also is with Gen Z and with millennials, 
that those particular demographics are more interested in, in seeing brands also contribute to social causes. So if a brand like Nike, for example, associates itself with Black Lives Matter and Colin Kaepernick, which it did, it is a way to signal certain social justice connections. And that's all part of the branding because people will actually purposefully go out and buy certain things because of the social messaging attached to that particular brand. So people, Nike stock went up because their primary demographics are in a younger generation and tend to be more, you know, they've done their market research so that they know they're not going to lose a ton of customers because they're supporting Colin Kaepernick, for example. And so they actually, that becomes part of their marketing ethos. And it doesn't mean, obviously, that they're really making any impact into police brutality, but it does mean that they are at least associating the brand with a positive association, a positive feeling around a social justice issue. All of this is wrapped up within the word brand. So it's no longer just an advertisement, just a symbol, but it's an entire, all these other values and beliefs and associations that get mapped onto it. So then how do people become brands? How are fighters branding themselves? They do this in a lot of different ways. So when you look at micro-influencers, when you look at social, social media personalities, it happens in a lot of, a lot of, via a lot of different strategies. A lot of times what people have to do is take what is authentically them and spin it in a way that is going to bring in certain people. So to go back to the Roxanne Modafari example, I asked her basically about her self-branding online. Like, what did she do? How did she think about it? Uh, I also asked the same questions of Angela Hill, who gave me somewhat similar answers and that they talked about, they knew that they weren't going to be marketable to absolutely everyone, but if they could get their core fans, then that would at least you know give them some sort of level of following and some positive social media buzz. And so they talked about how their brands were quirky and their brands were nerdy and and things like that. So I don't think there's necessarily a one size fits all. However, just because there's not a one size fits all, it doesn't mean that there isn't things that are certainly valuable over others. I think with fighters, some of the things that are valuable are being able to drum up business for a fight through conflict. A lot of times that's interpersonal conflict. Sometimes that's national conflict. If there's a clash of nations, like again, we saw in the Nama Yunus um, Zhang fight, that was another example of like this clash of, of nations rhetoric that gets thrown around. I think that's one way that you can market yourself. So if you can be, if you're a female athlete, like looking at Ronda Rousey, for example, she had this ability to trash talk and to be like very controversial. But if she was on the red carpet, she could get, you know, traditionally femininely, you know, dolled up. And that's a very appealing aspect of her brand. So there's a lot of different things. Certainly, certain things are valuable other, over others, like attractiveness is, is one of those things that's always valued, charisma, always valued. Um, and then, of course, you know, things like attractiveness and, and, and charisma get read through certain racial scripts and certain gendered scripts. And so it has to be done in, in particular ways if you're, 
if you're not a white man. And this might be more philosophical, but there's a jump because the traditional, even academic definition you gave of branding was about non-human things, right? Mm-hmm. Companies. Yeah. And then somehow it jumped to humans yeah. can also be brands. Absolutely. So then to me, it appears that once a human becomes a brand or start to brand themselves, they're no longer human. Mm. They become a symbol or a caricature, right? And so in the cases you just gave me with Angela Hill and Roxanne Modifieri, it's more about them trying to find a caricature of themselves they can live with, but they understand that they are no longer themselves. They're not just being themselves online, especially with both of them. I would say they put in more effort than some of the women who just rely on sex appeal. Absolutely. So then this is very crafted, very constructed. And so I don't have some kind of ultimate conclusion about this. I'm sure years down the line, when we study this more about social media and branding and how humans become brands, how that could even like affect how we dehumanize people, right? It's so much easier for me to say harassing or racist things to this person because I don't see them as a person. Yeah. Me talking shit about Angela Hill becomes me talking shit about Pepsi. And I see them in that same way. And so I think in a philosophical way, thinking about feeling pressure to do that more as an MMA fighter, because you're not a salaried employee, or you have to consider yourself an entrepreneur, it forces you to, I guess, dehumanize yourself or turn yourself into a thing so that you can scrape a living doing MMA. And it's like what you talked about earlier with visibility. Maybe you just wanted to fight, but you have to put yourself out there because you feel like that is the only way to make enough money doing this thing. Yeah. I mean, I love all the points that you're making. I think it's spot on because I think that there is an element, there's an element of the real, there's an element of needing to be authentic because you can't just totally make yourself into the image of somebody else. For example, Roxanne Monafari is not going to try to be Paige Van Zandt nor would she be successful at being that. So she has to figure out how to be herself, but be herself in a way that is going to, to give her the most boost. So the other thing that I would add to what you're describing here in terms of the dehumanization, I think there is a, a dehumanizing element that happens in that you cannot ever be authentically yourself. And it's not just UFC fighters. People are constantly curating themselves online in different ways because who you are on Twitter might be different from who you are on LinkedIn versus who you are on Facebook because those are different audiences. If you are being dehumanized and you do have to curate yourself for an audience, then what happens is it gives the masses a lot of power to determine what is popular, what is the most marketable, and what they want to see. So there's a way that the status quo then gets reinforced through the audience, through the people consuming those images, because if we're measuring or if the UFC is measuring engagement rates and a fighter is following along at which posts get the most engagement, then they're going to start posting that content more. So it pushes up. It's like a, it's a way to push up the popular content in this process of, of dehumanizing people and treating them as commodities or treating them as, as entities that you can criticize openly and be terrible to on the internet. I often use that example with Joe Rogan, where he and his audience exist in a feedback loop. As he creates content that drives more engagement, his audience informs him what is popular, which he tries to replicate. Yeah. 
And so as he makes them more terrible, they tell him what other terrible content they want, which creates this cycle and pushes the worst things to the top. Absolutely. And I want to bring up a point that is tangential to my book, but I I think this would be a good space to make it in, is I've seen some conversation around how, you know, the UFC is promoting alt-right groups and really taking in those fans. And it's fundamentally this conservative organization. And I don't want to refute any of that because I do believe, believe that that is true. And there's certainly a lot of evidence. But I think one thing that we need to pay attention to is the way that they they take these different audience groups and they see them as separate. They see them as different demographics. And what they're trying to do is not totally piss off any one given demographic, but give them enough content to set up conflicts among these groups. So if you can look at it between, look, if you look at, for example, like the Colby Covington, Kamara Usman fight, where they're really playing up this American dream immigrant with Usman who pulled himself up from the bootstraps. And then you have Covington, who's like this really bellicose, racist, sexist, go Trump guy. And there's what really works for them is a promotion of a fight like that, because you have all these different audience demographics. And, you know, we might make arguments about they're fundamentally conservative, yada, 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 but there are different audience demographics that are going on at once. So people will tune in and pay to watch Usman win, and they will tune in and pay to watch Covington win. And so no matter what, the org- the promotion has set up a scenario where they're going to make money no matter what. They're fundamentally making money on the politics of the moment. And I think that that's a really important piece to how the whole whole promotion operates is that, you know, in one breath, they're going to have a, a 25th anniversary women breaking barriers video that, that they, or film that they create to, to celebrate women in the UFC. And then the next video is an ode to Donald Trump and everything that he did to save the UFC back in the day. So they're catering to all these different places at once. And they, more than some other organizations get away with it financially because it's the conflict between those things that sells. It's like psyops. Exactly. Exactly. And it's fascinating to see them do this. And they, you know, they're not willing to take any, any stands. And they also take a very individualistic approach because they treat, they see all their fighters as individuals. So they don't want to censor, they they say they don't want to censor any given fighter. So they allow Covington to say whatever he's going to say. They allow Tyrone Woodley to say Black Lives Matter. And they say, oh, okay, well, we're not taking sides. We're just letting it all play out. And then they make the money off of it. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Something you talk about is the UFC as a pyramid scheme. Can you explain what you mean? 
Sure. So when you think about a pyramid scheme, usually you're attracted to the scheme because you see people succeeding. So there are plenty of examples we can point to in the UFC of people succeeding at achieving the American dream, at becoming professional fighters who do that for the living and only do that for a living. And Ronda Rousey is one really great example of this because, because she was a woman and because she was breaking into the sport, she was the first one that they allowed into the UFC. She becomes this standard that everyone is presumed to be able to meet. So she made the most money of any fighter, male or female in 2015. The UFC likes to repeat that fact over and over again. Ask them if any other female fighter has come close to that, (laughs) and they probably won't be able to come up with anything. So she was definitely the most popular fighter in the years that she was, she was really in, you know, in her prime in the UFC before she lost. And she drew in a lot of audiences that were not the typical UFC fans. So she was able to cater to a broader audience. So the UFC likes to repeat that refrain. And you can hear it coming from Dana White. You can hear it coming from Epstein. You can hear it coming from various different people where women have this possibility. They can reach these heights. But the only real example of that is Rousey herself. And the rest of the fighters are not really living up to that. And the way that the UFC gets around that is with the American Dream Discourse, which says... Basically, if you're not achieving greatness, if you're not doing what Rousey did, if you're not doing what McGregor did, if you're not doing with any other name you want to give, then it's your fault because you are not working hard enough. And it doesn't take into account all the other conditions that have to be right for a superstar to be born. It's basically saying anybody can do it. But the reality is, you know, whether we're talking about the UFC, whether we're talking about famous Hollywood actors, whether we're talking about any other sector of society, it's not that easy. And this promotion in particular, this job in particular, does not set fighters up for success because it doesn't really support them along the way because it's not even giving them a living wage in most cases. Then this can be an example of how the UFC is a microcosm of America because your example of the American dream in the UFC, you can see then how that can be in conflict with collective bargaining and unionizing because if it's all on me, what do I need these other people to bargain with? What do I need a union to help me? I just need myself. I can rely on myself. I rely on these two fists and I can get whatever done. And so if you absorb that idea, if you're indoctrinated into the idea, then to you, there's nothing worse than a union. There's nothing worse than collective bargaining. Yeah, absolutely. And I have an entire chapter that, that talks about the American dream and, and talks about this. And, and what you're saying is really spot on. And the thing that I would add is, particularly with fighters, there's a way that the fighters' ma- mindset maps perfectly onto the American dream discourse. So the American dream, dream discourse, like, like you're saying, is throughout society. We see that in a variety of of companies. We see it in a variety of institutions. We see it in our media, particularly entertainment media loves to tell that story, but there's a way that fighting itself becomes the metaphor for the American dream in that fighters are often talking about adversity. So they might be talking about adversity in the ring. Like they're, you know, 
they're, they get on their, their back in the, in the first round and they're getting pummeled and they, you know, the, the ref almost calls the fight and then, you know, the round buzzer goes off and they get it together and they, you know, dig in their heels and their coach gives them the pep talk. And then they come back in, in the second round and turn things around. And so they talk about the adversity of that. They talk about losing as this form of adversity, this mental mindset that they have to get over um, because losing in the ring is really devastating. And you have to turn around and change your mindset in order to go back at it. So what I'm saying here is the same thing happens when you hear you, the UFC tell stories about other adversities that fighters face in life. In life. So Aldo, Jose Aldo grew up in a favela. So that's his adversity. Conor McGregor, he grew up, you know, on the streets of Ireland. Ronda Rousey slept in her car for a while after the Olympics. And there's constantly stories being told about adversity that fighters have in life. And so the adversity of not being paid very much money, not being able to really afford your insurance, not being able to, like having to work an extra job in order to, you know, be able to pay for your upcoming fight. All of those things are part of the adversity that gets mapped onto the actual act of overcoming adversity and fighting. So it becomes this narrative that the UFC can spin in the stories that are told outside the ring. And it can be that same narrative that fighters are telling themselves about their lives and about the actual fight within the ring. And speaking specifically about unions, how do unions affect women and people of color? Historically, if you look at the literature and the research on unions in the United States, and probably I didn't look elsewhere outside of the United States, but certainly in the United States, unions typically level up the pay and the work experience for women and people of color in particular, because what it does, it sets, it sets in place particular standard procedures particular pay scales, particular structures that are meant to make it equal for everyone so that everybody is given the same sort of chances. And they they can work together as a collective voice to make sure that things are working for everyone equally and so that we don't have these we don't have massive income inequality. And what we've seen from the research on independent contracting, is there's more wage disparity in independent contracting because there's not usually unions in place or associations in place that allow for collective bargaining, that allow for ensuring that wages are fair and equal. And so usually in, in independent contracting situations, there's much greater disparity. And so really, I think, and what I argue in the book is fighters across the board in the UFC need better pay and they need to have be taken care of to a greater degree. But those who stand to benefit the most are white women and women of color in particular. Can you lose money as a UFC fighter? (laughs) Yes. And I believe that many of them do. Unfortunately, by the time you take out all the costs of what it costs to prepare for a fight So if you're in fight camp, then perhaps you're not able to work another job while you're in your camp because you have to focus on fighting and recovering from training. Um, And you also are paying for your gym fees. You're paying for special training potentially from your trainers. You are paying your manager. Um, 
you know, all of these things, all of the sacrifice goes into the fight itself. And so once you get there, especially if you're a newer fighter, you might get 12,000 to show and 12,000 to win a fight. And if you do that, then that doesn't guarantee that it's going to take care of all of the all of the things that you had to pay for while you were getting ready for the fight that you weren't able to use other income for. So I don't have firm data on how often it happens or how rampant it is or what the actual finances are of most UFC fighters. But if you put your ear to the ground and listen to the stories that they tell, there are quite a few of them. And there's quite a reason for concern even though we don't necessarily have firm data on how much they're actually in the red once they finish fighting. And I think it's knowledge we as fans have, but we never thought about it. We'll hear fighter A talk about how they were getting ready for a fight and they got injured and then they're not fighting. So they spent all that money and that time to get ready and then no even 10 and 10 or 12 and 12 that you spoke of, or they get all the way to the fight. The other fighter is injured or sick or it doesn't make weight, now they're not fighting again. And sometimes UFC might do the right thing, but they're not obligated to. So that's the problem. That's the structural problem. And even when they quote unquote do the right thing, they only give them part of the purse. You know, there's been fighters who haven't fought for two years because of a string of bad luck. You can kind of do the math in your head and extrapolate and realize they're probably not doing so good. Absolutely. I tell a story actually in the book where Courtney Casey was talking about a fight with her partner, Drucker Close had, and whoever, I don't remember who his opponent was, but he had to back out and they were already on location, like during fight week. And they weren't sure if they were going to get another, another fight or if, if, if Close was going to get another fight. And she talked about how stressful it was because they had invested so much. Both of them had invested because she had invested in getting him ready too. And they had invested a lot of their money and time into preparing for that particular fight. And at the last minute, they didn't know if they were going to get paid at all. They didn't know if he was going to get a chance to fight. And it's, and she was talking about how, how stressful it was and how much you need to be in a fighter's mindset. You need to be preparing for a fight mentally. But when you have this extra stress of this financial strain on top of that, that it can be, it can be really hard to bear and really hard to keep your head on track when you're worried about finances, basically. Are the fighters you talk to aware of how little they get paid compared to other sports? I would say the ones that are willing to talk about pay and they're not all willing to talk about it because it's a very taboo subject because they don't want to get blacklisted by the UFC for talking about pay. So I'll put that out there first. The ones that are willing to talk about it. Yeah. I mean, they, they know I, you know, and and a lot of what I did is, you know, I talked to some, but I, I did a lot of analysis of interviews. I did an analysis of hundreds of interviews with fighters, with, with UFC staff, with lots of different people. And, you know, it was pretty clear coming out of that, that they understand that they're not getting paid nearly what other sports are. They're not getting the margins, but most, the most dominant thing that came out of like all of that, you know, those other interviews that I interviewed or that I analyzed that other people did the interviews that I did myself, all of it that was coming out was, was pretty clear that, that they're afraid to make too much noise. Because, because again, with this fighter's mindset, there is this, 
I'm just going to put my head down and do my job. Like I'm just here to fight and not really wanting to take on the responsibility and like all the work that it would take to organize. Leslie Smith, of course, is an exception to that. There's other fighters that have been exceptions to that in terms of being willing to take on the machine and try to bring people together. Because I think it is really hard to go at the UFC as one individual fighter because the vast majority of fighters are completely expendable. They can let people go like right and left. You know, there's only a few names that they might try hard to hold on to, but it really, you could probably name them on one hand. Everybody else, they're willing to let go of because they have such a ready supply of, of fighters who are willing to try. And so fighters know that they know that they're expendable. And so the cost benefit analysis for them as an individual really comes down to, it's a lot of work to organize people. And I don't know, I could get blacklisted in the in, in the process. And I just don't know in the short time of, in the short term of my career, is this really going to make a difference for me? Because the difference might not happen until after I'm done. So, and I did have one fighter talk about that in particular um, in the book about how she just didn't see, you know, if she made some noise, if she tried to change things for fighters, it wouldn't happen for her generation of fighter because the career is too short. It would happen for the next generation and she wasn't willing to do that. Going back to the American dream, the UFC focuses a lot on adversity, as you mentioned. They'll even focus on financial adversity as part of that overcoming story. But when they do that, they don't want you to connect the dots. So early in Conor McGregor's UFC career, he was still living with his parents and still on welfare. That's something they used to promote him to say, here's where he was and this is how he's overcome. But what that's also revealing then is that the UFC's lack of pay was subsidized by his government. So my question for you then is how often does that happen, but is not spoken about where fighters are on some type of assistance program or Medicaid, and that's ultimately how they are subsidizing for not getting it from the UFC. And I would even add how many of them after they retire are using disability or social security in some way for the lack of pension. I am really glad you asked that question because I have not thought about that. And I actually have not seen anything written about that in particular. But I think that is a really interesting angle for further consideration in this whole topic because it would. So, and thinking about these, a lot of these questions with pay, for me, it comes down to a difficulty of getting the research. And so, how you would go about determining how often this happens is the only way that you could do that is actually to survey the fighters. So you would have to get the fighters to agree to talk about their personal finances. You'd have to get them to agree to talk about how pay works within the UFC and how much, how much money, you know, is going out to different things and, you know, what sort of assistance they get from other places. Um, and I've been hesitant to try doing that just because I, I did have some difficulty in, in getting fighters to agree to talk about some of some of this, these issues because they're afraid that their voice will be, you know, there something detrimental will happen. But I do think it would be definitely worthwhile if that survey ever does happen, whether it's me or somebody else that does it, 
I think it would be an excellent question to put on there because I think it's, it's something that it seems reasonable and I wouldn't be surprised at all. It's just a matter of being able to fundamentally get enough data, have enough people self-report uh, to be able to indicate whether that's actually happening or not. I think part of why it would be so taboo is because so many of them are also very much against assistance programs, even if they're on it. So it would kind of put the charade and the pretense away. And I don't want to put words in your mouth because you're an academic, so you have to live up to more rigor. But why I even asked you this is because being around MMA gyms, I knew people. That's how they subsidized it. They were doing it. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like something they would tell you in the locker room. This is what you should do. This is how you're going to do it. And you could even kind of connect your own dots because you know fighter A got injured Mm -hmm. while not in a fight. You know what kind of family they come from. They come from this poor family. They're not under their parents' insurance. They're not covered by UFC insurance. Somehow they got surgery of some kind, but they had to wait. They had to wait for a while. All of these things sound like problems you have and the process that you have to go through when you're on some state program, right? Because it is state run, you can't get that surgery right away. You got to wait. And so then they're sidelined for two years, waiting for this process, waiting for that surgery. They eventually get it. It all maps onto how Medicaid works. Mm -hmm. So even though they don't tell you, it resembles, let's say. We don't know for sure, but it resembles Medicaid. And oftentimes when they're talking about that, they had no money in their pocket, but somehow they still survived. Somehow they still made a living. But often it sounds like they must have been also on some kind of cash assistance program as well. Absolutely. I'm, I am not surprised in the least that, that, that you've heard people say that. And it, it does make complete sense the, the way that you frame it. And I really do think it would be an interesting thing if, if we could get more information on, because that's, that's the hard thing about this. There's a lot like, you know, in some ways, MMA is kind of a small community in that there are a lot of people not, you know, casual fans out there, or even your hardcore fans that don't want to talk about political or economic issues. Um, but you know, your educated fans that are out there pretty much know what's happening. You pretty much know if you pay attention that these are really difficult working conditions and that insurance is a huge problem and injury is a huge problem that doesn't get, doesn't get covered. And, you know, there are fighters who will fight injured in order to get that injury covered by UFC insurance because they can't get it covered by their regular insurance. So, you know, you hear those stories all the time. And if we piece all those stories together, then there's plenty of cause for concern. And I think that we do need to bring these points up and we need to put them out there in the ethos because, you know, it, it does bear some scrutiny, even if we can't fundamentally prove it in data yet. And, you know, a lot of what I'm doing in my book too, is I'm not relying on a lot of data. I'm, I'm relying on a lot of analysis of the cultural, economic, and social conditions all pieced together. Um, and that fundamentally is important, is important research too. But I think in terms of knowing how the quantity, I think would be a really important thing to get um, because we know it's happening, but we don't know how widespread it is. And that would be, that would be what doing a survey like that would, would give us. Ultimately, we know a lot of them would qualify. It's a question of, would they do it or not? Right. And they probably are. And so how many of them actually are? How different was the UFC's response to the pandemic and lockdown compared to other sports? (laughs) 
Well, <laughs> I guess it depends on the sport. So I would say most sports, if, especially if you're looking at big name sports in the United States, you know, your typical heavy hitters definitely locked down the NBA, the WNBA. When they did come back, they came back several several months later um, than the UFC came back. And when they did come back, they created a bubble, which is easier to do in a tournament style sport or sport that has teams. But, you know, UFC immediately when the pandemic happened had a different approach than a lot of other sports. A lot of other sports were like, stop immediately and assess the situation. The UFC was, how do we get around this? And so they immediately went to looking at if they could do an event in California on a native reservation, because of course, native reservations don't have the same laws as the state of California. So they were hoping to do an event there and couldn't do it. And so they basically shopped around until they could find a, find a location that would do it for them. And that was Abu Dhabi and Fight Island. So it's interesting because sometimes in, in some frame of minds, I look at the UFC and go, wow, you, they really do use a lot of ingenuity. And one of the things that I talked about <laughs> in the book is how they, I call them a millennial sports media brand and they adopted social media practices early because they, the mainstream sports networks and, and mainstream channels weren't touching them. So they had to do a lot of like really creative work to connect with fans, to grow the brand. And they really were at the forefront of, of social media in terms of sports media brands. And so in some ways you look at that and you go, wow, that's, you know, good on you. Like you did good work here. And the creativity involved with moving, like getting the fight set up in Abu Dhabi and the whole like latching on to this idea of Fight Island and branding it and all of that. You look at it and go, wow, all right. You really, you really use ingenuity <laughs> to get this, make this happen. Of course, that is not considering human ramifications of those actions. It's like a Bond villain. They're really yeah, smart. Yeah, they are. In some ways, you're like you're watching the Bond movie, and you're like, "Wow, that guy's really devious." And that's so I can't believe that <laughs> happened. I wasn't expecting that. And then you're like, "Oh, wait, he's he's really like Doctor Evil." Like it's <laughs> <laughs> they're fighting on an island, yeah. you know, <laughs> <laughs> literally, literally. So yeah, I mean, but it's par for the course with them because you know, back to something that I mentioned earlier with independent contracting and the risk because independent contracting is low risk for the company. That means they're not investing in people. So if something happens to those people, whether they're injured in a fight, whether they're injured in a, um, in a sparring match in their gym, if they're injured because, or, or they get sick because of COVID, all of that is, not a lot of risk on the company. And so they have COVID testing, which, you know, isn't not totally free if depending on where you get it from, um, you know, they're probably paying some money to get those COVID tests um, and, and get them returned rapidly, but that's not very much money. And so they can bring in fighters. And if they test for COVID, they're like, Oh, see ya. You don't, you can't fight because of, you know, because you're, you're positive for COVID. So again, it's like, all those fighters like invested their time in training and they come show up for the fight and they caught COVID on the plane. So 
I mean, I don't think, you know, looking at the organizations that did it well in terms of like when they came back and how they structured things to come back, I would say they get an A plus for creativity and an F for <laughs> human centered care of their, the people who work for them. <laughs> Something you've mentioned in previous interviews and the UFC's response to the pandemic is how they didn't give their athletes a say mm. like other sports did, yeah. right? Other sports through their associations yeah. were able to have a say. When they came back, what were the terms? They considered their own safety, whereas fighters didn't have anything like that. And they just had to go with the whim of the UFC because they're just like, well, how am I going to get money or am I going to get cut? And oftentimes fighters who did want to wait until things were safer, the UFC blasted them. Yeah, I think Stipe was one of those. Miocic was one of those. Stipe and Leon Edwards both got admonished. Yeah, and I think, again, it goes back to this mentality of how expendable the fighters are because because they don't have a unified voice. They can't, they can't go to the promotion and have like a, like a discussion about what they're willing to do as a group and what they're not. There's no avenue for that. And instead, they are expendable. So they, the UFC knows that they need to book a, you know, 12 fight card, for example, they know they're going to have fighters to fill that even during COVID. They're going to have people who are willing to do that because as Dana White says, fighters are hungry and they're not just hungry to fight. They're actually literally need money in order to sustain themselves so that they are willing to take risks and work during COVID, for example. Uh, there, there are people willing to do that. And, you know, I think that they're, they were at no risk for not being able to fill cards during that time because of the conditions of, of working for the UFC. The UFC highlights Ronda Rousey as being the sole reason they started a women's division. But that's a pretty conditional reason for starting a women's MMA division. Was the UFC trying to build a star in Rousey by saying that? Or do you think they really wouldn't have started a women's division without her? I think they would have eventually. But I think that Rousey came around and was the perfect storm for it to happen when it happened. I think there's a few different reasons why it happened with Rousey and it didn't happen with some other people. Part of it has to do with who she is. And if you ask anybody in the UFC or anybody who analyzes it, everybody always says the reason that women are now in the UFC is because of Ronda Rousey. And believe me, I tried to find another reason. I wanted it to be another reason because it seemed too simple in a way. And, but the reality is, is that she was getting a lot of traction. She was winning fights in a spectacular fashion. She had charisma. She had an interesting story to tell and that she was an Olympian and she has this ability to trash talk and to play up the, the, I hate whoever she's fighting um, in order to sell a fight. She can walk the runway and, you know, glam up and she can, she can sell products. So there are ways that because all of those things existed, she had to be winning fights in a spectacular fashion that had to be there. She had to have that skill. 
But all of those other things were also really important and wouldn't have happened because it didn't happen with Cyborg ever. So, you know, it, it was the other things that, 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 that both the UFC could sell and the mainstream audience was willing to buy. And so she had that package. But the other thing that I talk about in the book is that we have to contextualize it in this particular cultural moment because somebody like Gina Carano, who came along earlier, could have arguably done the same things, but it wasn't the same cultural time. And some of the things that had an impact that I talk about in the book is the focus on the contemporary focus on girls and women's empowerment. Several years ago, it became really an in vogue for different media entities, whether it was advertising or whether it was entertainment media, to talk about girls and women's empowerment. We see this in other sports as well. This is a big focus on the U.S. women's national team, how they're you know such empowering fi- figures for um, pay issues and for you know other issues around women's rights and sports and things like that. And so there was this cultural moment where they could, the UFC could spin that merit narrative and they did, they learned pretty quickly. And they told me some people that I talked to in their marketing department that Rousey was more popular with women fans than men fans. And that they didn't really anticipate that initially because they thought of their fan base as being primarily men, but they realized that she, she was bringing in a lot of women and that was like growing their audience. And so they found that to be really attractive. So they played up this women's empowerment theme that I talk about in the book. And another thing that was happening is that the brand ethos itself, one of the ways that they think about their audience, and we've already talked about this a little bit, is that they think of their audiences not as a monolith. It's not, they, they don't think of their fan base as one thing. It's not just, you know, straight white dudes in, you know, watching UFC and bars yelling at the screen and throwing drinks or, you know, the meathead stereotype that we all have of MMA fans. So it's not just that. There is some of that, but it's not just that. And so they mark off their, they do research on their, their different fan demographics and they'll spin different fights through different angles. And so sometimes it'll be, you know, trying to play up with a a national, um, you know, a national identity. So oftentimes if you have like a a European fighter in the main event, then the fight is going to be in Europe and you're going to have lots of European fighters opposed who are fighting fighters of other nationalities. And that's one way that you can market it in that particular demographic. Um, when you have women's, you know, a main event on the card, usually you have other women that are on, on the, that card for the night. When you have black fighters as the main event, you're going to have other black fighters on the card. You can see this. I haven't actually run the content analysis required to prove all of this, but I would, you know, urge you and urge your, your listeners to look at it next time you see a card and think about identity. How are they configuring those cards to map onto certain identities? So this was also happening in the UFC at the same time that they really wanted to reach out to Latinx audiences and black audiences. And that the way that they did that is start representing more black fighters. And so they had Kimbo Slice that they, they brought in and they wanted to bring in his whole audience from YouTube. Um, and then they had um, Kane Velasquez, who they really wanted to help bring in a Mexican-American crowd. 
And so they had this ethos already when Ronda Rousey came around. So it was easy to map that onto, okay, now we're going to do this with women. So that's another demographic that we can, we can parse out and we can spin our content to. So all of those things, the three things that I've identified is Rousey herself as being this charismatic, sellable figure for all the reasons that she was. And then women's empowerment being really popular at that particular time. And then also this broader brand ethos, of we are all fighters. So if there's a way that each person can find a fighter that represents them within the organization. All of that combined created the perfect storm to allow women in the UFC. I guess what I'm curious about is why does it have to launch around a person? Mm. What I mean by that is when UFC launched their other weight divisions, they didn't launch it around any one person. They just launched it and then stars came out of it. Jose Aldo came out of it. Dominic Cruz, Henry Cejudo came out of it. So in other ways, they've been able to launch something just because they thought that's what they needed. Mm. This aspect of the sport needs to exist and it wasn't conditional. What I'm observing though is for women's divisions, even though now we got the first one with Ronda Rousey, we got that division, every subsequent division, they've also done the same thing where they have to gear it around a person. So I see a double standard here where they can launch something and it's the right thing to do and they do it. But with women, they have to do it around a person to guarantee that they can make money off of it. Yeah. And I think that that I haven't thought of that specifically, but I think it's a great point. And I would I would say it probably has something to do with the fact the broader culture around women's sports is women have to prove themselves as able to bring audiences before people will invest. You see it with women's sports across the board. The U.S. women's national team has to bring in the revenue before U.S. soccer will invest in them. WNBA, same thing. Like they have to, they have to prove that they have numbers, even though they're going to have less resources. So they don't get as good of production teams. They don't have as much investment money. They don't pay their players as much, but yet they have to get the eyeballs and then people will invest. And if you look at men's sports across the board, it's not as seen as, as a risky endeavor because, you know, there's plenty of teams, like there's teams in the NFL that don't do well financially. There's teams in the NBA that don't do well financially. There are teams in major league soccer also that, you know, people are investing in and keep investing in, but they're not actually doing that well financially, but they keep doing it because they see it as an investment with women's sports. Women have to prove first that they can bring in the eyes, but they have to do it on less resources and they have to do it under conditions that are not equal to men usually. So uh, the fact that the UFC is also doing that is, is unsurprising if you look at women's sports more broadly. And to just unpack what you're saying about investing, investment means it's somewhat of a gamble. You don't know for sure you're going to get returns. So you're putting it in there and waiting hoping to make returns on your money down the line. Whereas with women, you don't want to invest. You want to know from day one that you will make your money back, that you will make money. And so it shows the two different ways that they think about it. For men, we will invest. For women, I want a sure thing. Absolutely. And I think this is just another example of the types of things that I try to unpack in the book is it's, it's not the sexism that you see on the surface. It's the sexism embedded in how they run their business. 
And this, you know, even though I don't talk about the specific example in the book, this is another perfect example of that phenomenon happening. And you mentioned earlier how it wasn't the right time, but you likened Carano to Rousey, but you mentioned Cyborg as the one that doesn't fit into this basket. And I think in your book, you talk about this with the attributes of a potential star. Obviously, number one, they have to be good, but there has to be other attributes on top of that. I talk about Carano and Rousey and, and, and also Cyborg in the, in the introduction of the book, because I talk about how the fight between Cyborg and Carano was billed as actually billed as beauty versus the beast. So they're actually <laughs> talking about physical attributes. So Carano is white. She's very Hollywood pretty in a lot of ways. She is, she's very, you know, striking and powerful as an athlete, but she does have that ability to also look like a model. Cyborg does not have that same capability. She has, she has very defined muscles. She is, she has, you know, bone structure and like face that is not typically the thing that you're going to see in advertising for for high fashion or, you know, some sort of commercial product. So she doesn't have the same possibility. She's also Brazilian and she has an accent, which also has a way that her ability to convey charisma to an American audience is going to be hindered a bit because of she has a strong accent. Um, And then also she has, she has this record where she did have some, performance enhancing drug infractions. And even though, like I talk about this in the book about how I see that as unfair because men were given a more of a pass for infractions like that than she was given. Like she, people will never let that go. People always talk about that. They always bring that up. But you talk about a male fighter that had a, had an infraction at the same time and nobody can really remember. So there is a double standard when it comes to that. And so the other thing about, um, the other thing about Cyborg that's interesting is she's not a company woman. She is like, she presents herself as, as, as a professional to be sure, but she's going to advocate for herself and she doesn't, she doesn't back down to bullying. And so she's called people out who are UFC personalities who have made comments on her appearance. She's called Dana White out for some comments that he's made about her before. So she's not willing to just take it. And I think this is another important factor in her in her not being marketable for the UFC because she's not as malleable. She doesn't conform as much. And that makes it very difficult because they do have other fighters who are really impressive fighters that aren't necessarily, again, they aren't the ones that are going to also have the modeling contracts, but they are like Amanda Nunez. She is, she's, she's a bit more masculine presenting. She's a lesbian. She like, she is a, she's, the UFC markets her as a goat, but they don't really give her the same sort of push as they would have given somebody like, um, like Rousey, for example. And so I think, you know, if you look at how Cyborg was treated in the UFC, like she went through a period where, you know, when she was winning her fights, they were, you know, letting her fight. And as soon as she loses a fight, she's gone because she gets into, she basically gets into it with like UFC higher ups and doesn't put up with it. She stood up for herself. She stood up for herself. And I think that an important factor in all of this 
is that not only do you have to be all of those things that I listed, but you have to be willing to play their game. And if you're not willing to play their game and you're not also these other things, you're not going to have any power. You're not going to have any agency because you could argue if you look at somebody like Conor McGregor, Conor McGregor stands up to himself with the UFC, but he also gets away with a lot more because his overall star power gives him more power. Whereas somebody and and Rousey, like I, I don't remember any instances where she really stood up to the UFC, but I mean, she would be in that same sort of category in her heyday, whereas Cyborg, she didn't have that. So she didn't, she didn't have that same level of power. So she was expendable, even though, even though the best fight for the UFC to make for Nunez right now would be Cyborg, but they're not going to do it because they don't consider it worth it. Um, and they don't think her as valuable a commodity, even though it would be the best fight to make. It's the rest of the stuff that surrounds star power. And what the UFC considers worthwhile, all of those extra things that are external to fighting that means that they're, they're, they're just not going to do that. In mentioning Gina Carano, Ronda Rousey, that ability to be on a runway, that Hollywood attractiveness that you spoke about, I think in the book you called it conventionally attractive. And I think you meant that in a North American term, right? Absolutely. I would even put Rose Namajunas in that category, somebody you mentioned previously, because I actually thought the cover of your book mm-hmm. was Ronda Rousey. Mm. And a lot of people actually think it's Ronda Rousey. Really? And in realizing it was Rose Namajunas, in thinking about it from those other attributes that your book breaks down is she does look similar to me to Ronda Rousey. Yeah. That black hoodie, the scowl yeah. on her face, that white attractiveness, that conventionally attractiveness. Mm-hmm. I think people just put too much on the hair. Yeah. And so they think because of the hair, it's, it's different. But Ronda Rousey, without that hair, had that same aesthetic with her walkout punk music. She was still punk rock. Absolutely. And now in WWE, her whole aesthetic is much more punk. So I would say they still have that. She's not at the level of Ronda Rousey, but even recently how the crowd reacts to her, she still has some of that. Absolutely. That Hulk Hogan-like ability to get a crowd to turn on another popular fighter is a power not every MMA fighter has, but it's something Conor McGregor was able to do to Jose Aldo. It's a power Ronda Rousey had. And it's a power a lot of quote-unquote great white hopes have. So can you speak to us about that idea of being conventionally attractive? Because I think we think of attractiveness as something that is unbiased, something that's just natural that you're born with. You're just born to like certain faces or certain people. But your book breaks down and also other feminist scholars break down how a lot of that is conditioned and coded. So can you unpack that for us? So there fundamentally, when you're talking about female athletes, there is this assumption that if you can perform more traditional understandings of femininity, then it is somehow more attractive. So that has to do with clothing, that has to do with facial structure, a round face, for example, or an oval face that's symmetrical is is usually perceived to be prettier. Um, And all of this is coded through what we see in film and television portrayed as what's beautiful. So we see women who are very slender. So if you look at, you know, for example, like the straw weight class, like weight class, they, there's a lot of women that fall into a category that would more traditionally be, you know, featured in 
you know, maybe even athletic magazines, for example, because of their body shape. Whereas the 145ers, you're not going to see that. That's not the ideal body form. And so the conventional attractiveness um, varies like according to weight class when it comes to women in particular. And I think it's it's stronger too, because it, the lower the weight costs, like the more it fits in with, with those codes of, of what's considered beautiful. All of this is also written through, um, written through whiteness in a lot of ways, because what is, has traditionally been on film and television and in magazines has, is a particular Western European visual aesthetic. So once you start having different hair textures, once you have different eye shapes, once you have different nose shapes or lips or different body sizes, all of that gets compared against whatever the standard is. And so when you think about marketability for female athletes, it tends to default to that Western white European standard. And then all other women get measured against that. And so you have women in the UFC that, of course, are more masculine presenting um, meaning that they are much more muscular. They don't have curved bodies. They might be bigger than that sort of model standard. And so all of that has a bearing on how they can market themselves on social media and how the UFC, you know, pays attention to who's who's watching them. So it creates a hierarchy, whether it's colorism or racial hierarchy, or even a hierarchy of this conventional attractiveness that probably not just in North America because Hollywood caters to the world, right? Absolutely. But it creates that as the top of the pyramid as you kind of use as reference. Yeah, exactly. And there is market value for, in, in the UFC's perspective, there is market value for those ones that fall below that. And you'll see how, you know, it's it's not super visible, but you'll see how they'll do things that are specifically trying to, to market to LGBTQ fans. Like when they booked Liz Carmouche for the first fight against Rousey, they actually like tried to connect with the, I don't know exactly how they did this, but they talk about how they tried to connect to the LGBTQ community. So that typically would not be at the highest levels of visibility, but they see it as an avenue for bringing in new fans. So even if they bring in, it's not a huge market, they still can bring it in. So there's a way that representation then becomes like an avenue. Or even if you're bringing in a small group of fans, at least it's increasing your, your viewership. Along these lines, there's this line in Gone Girl by Jillian Flynn that reminds me of expectations of female fighters in the UFC. It's where she describes the cool girl, which is this impossible standard to be one of the quote unquote boys while being feminine. You can fight, but also cook where you're equal parts athletic and badass, but also sexy and soft, where you're the master of non-traditional roles while maintaining traditional ones. Would you say this is accurate? Oh, absolutely. And I think this is a standard that women face in sports across the board in that the ones that make the most money in sponsorship tend to be the ones that can be pretty and feminine off the field or off the court or out of the ring. So it is pretty much, it's a duality that they have to perform because the very nature of athleticism, of being aggressive, of fighting, or, you know, other types of sports where you have to, to be aggressive and go after the ball or something like that. All of that requires attributes that are typically considered masculine. And so women often feel this pressure to perform a particular type of femininity 
once they're outside of the ring um, in order to in order to play up their marketability. And so this duality is something that they're constantly trying to balance, but it never quite fits because if you think about men and what is considered the best qualities or attributes of male fighters, oftentimes athleticism gets mapped on very neatly onto athleticism. There's not a disassociation there. There's no, there's no cognitive dissonance that has to happen in order to understand them. But with female fighters, the ones, again, these are the ones that are put up as the ideal, the ones that make the most money are, are often, you know, have this, they can, they can play both sides of the coin. And an example I often give of that is that for many years, Maria Sharapova was paid more in sponsorship dollars than Serena Williams, even though Serena Williams beat her time after time after time after time. And Serena was at the top of her game and is the greatest of all time. Like Sharapova was still making more money than her, (laughs) which is ludicrous, but that's how it works because Sharapova plays to that more, that conventional understanding of, of, of she can be feminine off the court. Whereas Serena is constantly derided for being too masculine or too aggressive or, you know, all of those ways that misogynoir seeps into how we understand Black women's bodies, particularly Black athletic bodies. Speaking of the LGBT community, which you referenced earlier, as a media scholar, have you had a chance to watch the superhero show, The Boys? I have seen the first season of The Boys. Okay, that's all you need. So there's a company in there that acts as the main antagonist called Vought that reminds me a lot of the UFC Vought says they don't care about politics, just about making money, which they pretend isn't political. In the show, there was a scene about marketing their lesbian superhero, Queen Maeve, and there's a couple of interesting critiques that came out of that. First of all, though Queen Maeve was out, the character did not feel comfortable making her private life more visible to the world, nor used as a marketing gimmick. And I think we touched upon that earlier with visibility. The second interesting thing was the line they had about Ellen DeGeneres how her homosexuality is acceptable to daytime TV audiences because she and Portia de Rossi are cis white women who still follow conventional gender roles of masculine and feminine. And if it's more ambiguous and nonconforming, it doesn't test well even with their liberal audiences. So I'm using this as a backdrop to perhaps analyze the complex dynamics that exist not only with the UFC, but also their audience. We see lesbian women fighters, but gay men, non-binary and trans are all still taboo. So at least in terms of how the same-sex relationships of some of these female fighters have been marketed, they also resemble traditional masculine and feminine gender roles that the VOD PR department highlighted as testing better. So going back to what you said about the right kind of person or the right kind of star that you talk about in your book, there seems to be the right kind and the wrong kind of queerness not only for the UFC, but also to UFC fans, if not mainstream fans in general. Could you talk to us about this dynamic at play here? Absolutely. I love the analogy between the boys and the UFC and Vought. Uh, I had never put that together, but now I see it as a perfect correlation. So I appreciate you giving me that. The UFC says, for example, in Amanda Nunes, that she was the first LGBTQ champion. So let's look at those letters within LGBTQ. Lesbian. Okay, yes, she's a lesbian. Gay. 
anti-trans? Definitely not, because they vehemently opposed the very idea of Fallon Fox coming into the UFC. And queer, what does actually queer mean? What does it mean to them? Okay, so we only have lesbians. So you could say she's the first lesbian fighter. And there are some reasons culturally why lesbian fighters might be more acceptable in the UFC than those other letters in the, in, in the queer alphabet. And some of those reasons are if you look at women's sports across the board, they're typically stereotypes as havens for lesbians. So a lot of women's sports are perceived as because they are, are again, with the, the issue of connecting masculinity and athleticism, there's a way that women performing sports are read as being more masculine, which then gets read as gay. And so culturally, that's been around for a long time. And so it's not, it's not unsurprising when a woman comes out in the WNBA. And actually, a lot of women don't even have to come out because they've always been out, you know, in this generation or other women's sports. It's just, it's unremarkable because it's, it's, it's so part of how we perceive women's sports as being, as being a place where, where lesbians are. And then you look at the women in the UFC and they do, you know, there's several women that have relationships with each other and they are just kind of portrayed as this normal thing. It isn't necessarily super visible, but it isn't invisible and that you'll see uh, Nina Ansaroff in the ring with, with Nunez and you see them kiss after a fight and it's, it's not, and they'll talk about Nunez's wife or they'll talk about Nunez when Ansaroff fights and, and, you know, it, it it's just, it's commonplace in that way. But I, I do think that you're right that there are ways that, that it helps the story if there are then gender roles that are assigned to those, to those relationships. I think we as a society understand, we're always, you know, asking lesbians, okay, who wears the pants in the relationship, which is assuming that there's going to be an unequal gender dynamic because of patriarchy. And I think that, that, there are some ways that it's it makes logical sense that these would be the queer identities that we would see visible. Now, they would not advertise a pansexual fighter. They would not probably advertise as much a bisexual fighter unless it were a female fighter, which is more culturally acceptable than for men, obviously. And there hasn't been an out gay male fighter, um, not really, in the UFC. And I, I don't think that that, I'd be really interested to see how they do that. I think it would depend a lot on the context, the other things surrounding it. I can't imagine that they would do all that well with it, um, but it would be interesting to see them try. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that identities that, that the UFC is willing to promote do have to fit into some sort of conventional understanding of that identity. There has to be a way to spin it to make it the most positive. And I think with lesbian identities, it's an easy way to be like, we're queer friendly, but lesbian is really kind of the easiest, easiest one to incorporate into sports in all reality, just because it already has so long been incorporated into women's sports. Something I got out of reading this book was the idea of violence and how violence isn't what the fighters do to each other. Violence is how the UFC exploits their combat sports workers. So with that said, thank you for writing this book, Jen, and taking so much time out of your day to talk to us. 
Oh, thank you so much. These questions were great. And I really enjoyed our conversation. Where can people find you and Fighting Visibility? You can find Fighting Visibility on all the usual suspects. The press is the University of Illinois Press, so you can buy it directly from them or any other online bookseller. And my Twitter handle is at J McLaren. So J-M-C-C-L-E-A-R-E-N. All right, I'll put all that in the show notes. Thank you. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. South Pauls. Hitting with the left. South Pauls. Sam. Paul. South Paul. South Paul.